This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. And welcome to New Books in Fantasy. I'm your host, A.E. Lanier. Today, I will be speaking with Hannah Kainer about her novel, God Killer. The story takes place in the country of Midran, a place where gods have been banned as a result of a brutal civil war. The novel follows three main characters Kissin, a woman whose family was killed by zealots of a fire god and who now makes a living killing gods herself, as well as a young noble girl tied to a god of white lies, and a knight who was once the king's closest confidant and now lives in self-imposed exile. Hannah Kainer is a Northumbrian writer living in Scotland. Godkiller is her debut novel, and she is here with us now. Hi, Hannah. It's great to have you. Hi. Thank you so much for having me here. I'm so excited. Yeah, it's really lovely to have you. Can you start by just telling us a little bit about this project, how it came about, what was exciting for you in telling the story? Well, I first had the idea for the main character back in 2016 um, when I was writing another book um, and then I guess this loud angry belligerent woman sort of kicked her way into my head and just refused to leave by the time I was like I can't pick up this project right now I'm working on another one Um, but when that project kind of um, didn't see ink like wasn't picked up by publishers I decided to to listen to the the loud woman in my head and start writing. And so I think I really picked up the pen in sort of late 2019. Um, and I knew I wanted to write a quest. I knew I wanted to write a quest with a angry, irreverent, powerful, pragmatic, witty woman at its heart. And I thought, what's more irreverent than killing gods? I kind of had had been reading some fantastic retellings and sort of um, stories about gods and magic and about the capriciousness of gods. And so I really wanted to write a character who could hold the powerful to account and but also pitch her against her, her weaknesses and her strengths. And so that's where it began. And it kind of unspooled from there. 
And gods are a really central part of both this world and also your protagonist's story. Could you talk a little bit about how they work in this world and the relationship that they have with your protagonist? So gods in this world are, are very real. They um, exist or manifest physically, and it is a level of, of faith and love and um, gifts and offerings that, that give these gods uh, both presence and power. And as with any person, anything that kind of thrives off the love, adoration, faith, or investment of people, that power can both be used beautifully and be used for ill. And the god killer, um, of which there are many in this world, is essentially kind of like draws a line in the sand of saying, this far and no further, like you can abuse your power so far, but I'm going to hold you to account when you can kind of, um, when you step over that line. And in a world where kind of gods are so many and manifest um, so freely, um, they were previously thought of as kind of like rat catchers of gods that are turned bad. Um, but since the civil war where gods kind of really severely overstepped the lines of, of whether they were there for to support humans or whether they were there to use humans, um, god killers have kind of taken on a much more powerful role in the society where they are backed by the king who is saying gods should not exist, we shouldn't be relying on them. It's just pure chaos when they manifest and then they turn people against each other. So it's kind of, it's a complicated world. And I had to, so I developed a lot of the magical lore around around the gods and who they, um, like how their powers manifest and how belief supports them and how lack of belief uh, destroys them. And so it was really interesting to kind of build a god killer in symbiosis with a world that um, has lived with with gods. There's a lot of different kinds of gods in this world from like gods of lost sandals to really big, powerful gods. A lot of sort of the central main players are elemental gods. In particular, gods of water are pretty consistently important throughout the novel. Kissin's father had a relationship with one and they continue to sort of pop up. Can you talk a little bit about the role of water gods or elemental gods and what was interesting to you about that? Oh yeah, this is really, um, you're kind of uh, scratching my little uh, nerd heart. Um, So I kind of wanted to draw a distinction between the gods of ancient gods of the wild who are kind of have been manifest for so long that they don't really have um i guess they're not as tied to a single shrine they're not as tied to um a very local set of beliefs they've kind of become um more widespread more known across this country and across the world as well and so water gods really tie into the idea of kind of um pagan gods or gods of kind of really ancient myth where that relationship with a human going into sea in the hopes of catching a good lot of fish or finding safe harbour or um, or coming home to their family um, safe is something that kind of, I think, appears in a lot of different cultures and communities and that kind of relationship between people and the wild world around them. Um, so I think water gods are kind of some of the most... Uh, prominent deities of this world which is based on a um on a trade sea so it's about different countries who have been uh trading communicating over a period of centuries 
And then we had kind of more newer gods, gods of commerce or gods of that have kind of sprung out of more urban areas or more built up areas where you've got kind of like gods of broken sandals or gods of good fortune or gods of thieves or gods of weaving, which have come more about human endeavor. So we have that kind of movement in this world of between humans and their relationship with nature and the wild towards humans and their relationship with commerce and industry. And kind of that's a bit of the the tension that I wanted to draw out of this book, both in its history and its way its society is being built, but also in its potential future and where the next few books could go. And sort of the most central god we have in terms of consistency throughout the story is, of course, Skeddy, who is quite an unusual god in some ways um, and is a god of white lies, which is, to me at least, feels very separate or like on a different polar access from things like these giant gods of the water or something like that. So could you talk a little bit about him and why you wanted him to be sort of like at the heart of this story? I think I kind of, I love the ambivalence of white lies, that that kind of lies can be used to to harm or to heal and kind of come with like a level of of power in themselves and of storytelling in themselves. And I thought that made him kind of like a beautiful sort of um, pivot point which shows that gods are not necessarily inherently bad or not necessarily inherently good. Um, and I wanted to kind of like his power to be related to that, something that could be used in many different ways. Um, and I also kind of wanted to play with the idea of gods that weren't really super powerful. And part of the mystery about Skeddy is why does he exist? Like kind of what's his purpose and why does why is he still alive when whatever shrine that he did once have doesn't appear to exist anymore so he's now only attached to a young girl whereas in this world if a god's shrine is destroyed um particularly if they're a small god if they're a biggish god they've kind of got multiple different shrines they could potentially live on but a small god if their shrine is gone the god is essentially going is either going to die um or is, is already dead and so i thought i love the idea of the mystery of a god who has both this potential commerce and industry nature of like kind of political white lies and power and politics and like the use of that but also that essentially more wilder human communication human desire to um to live and talk and like have family and the way that they they speak to the other in that so i felt like skeddy kind of treaded that line um he's also based on a Bavarian uh, folklore or tale of a vulpetinger, which is quite similar to a jackalope in the US. So a hare with um, a deer's antlers and the vulpetinger has like a, a bird's wings as well. And in the folklore um, that's quite similar as in Scotland to a haggis, it's basically a story you tell newcomers. It's like, oh, if you go into a, into the forest and you go a lot bit further and you're really quiet, you might, you might see a vulpetinger. And as you have in Scotland, it's like if you go into the hills, they go into Cairngorms and you just, you know, keep your eyes peeled. You might come across a, a haggis, which is a little fluffy creature with one leg shorter than the other. It's all lies, but it's kind of stories and it's kind of entertainment and just a little bit of magic. And I really wanted to to draw that out, sort of, um, I guess, a bit of classic, joyful, youthful fantasy, as well as kind of the darkness of great gods in a wild world. That's brilliant. I had no idea that those existed. I was definitely thinking just like winged jackalope as an American, but that is, <laughs> that's super fun. There's an element of 
sort of power that exists throughout this novel as well in a way that I think is really interesting, right? We're definitely already talking about um, how you have very big and powerful gods, and then we are following a god who is very much not that. Um, and then also there's sort of shifts in power throughout, right? This is, Midrin is in an extreme transition, and we have a lot of kind of the very powerful coming up against the much less powerful. Kissin comes from, um, like, essentially a begging background, has existed in extreme poverty. We have other characters who are nobles. Um, we're following Elagast, who is essentially, like, in many ways, like, the best friend or brother figure of the king. And that element of power is sort of a very central and interesting theme. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about just the role that power and politics play throughout the world or the story. Yeah, I think kind of, I wanted to write a world in transition and in transition in the way that kind of, um, I guess our world has kind of gone through stages of this where um, faith and politics and power and cults of personality come into, um, come into clash. And it's often the kind of, individuals and their need to just kind of like make ends meet who become um tugged apart in these in these games of power and these games of essentially iconography and so I wanted to write from Kissin's perspective because she is she is a working woman she is someone who holds the powerful to account who has been essentially tugged around in games of power and has said no more and that makes her a really interesting character when compared to um, Inara, who's kind of like powerless in this world as an ingenue, like she's a new person, but she's also grown up in relative like wealth and luxury and essentially has been coddled all her life. And then we have Elo, who has come from wealth and has been the right-hand man of, of who is now the king um, and has chosen to leave that aside, but in a way that he can always, like he's chosen to exile himself, as you said, but there is that potential for him to pick that up again. He does pick up his sword and he does kind of um, embark on a quest, which is about kind of uh, changing, challenging or controlling kind of um, different tugs of movement and power between people and, and well, the king. Um, so I kind of wanted to write a world that is, that is in flux and where there's going to be over the trilogy where there's going to be a tug of war essentially between different power centers and different power centers in different countries with their different faiths and different belief systems, um, as well as in, in Midran itself with its kind of essential loss of a huge swathe of the royal family and of its armies and of its like financial power, um, as well as its gods. And so there essentially has to be a, a redistribution or a rebalancing of power in this country for it to still retain its shape and it to retain its existence. And these are kind of like the undercurrents of the story, which is quite small in scope. It's a genuine small quest there and back again, um, four people or three people and a god traveling across the wilds of this land and essentially traveling through power centers. But the overall draw of the story and the current of the story is much much bigger and as the kind of the books go on the sense or understanding of of where those power centers lie and how they are clashing becomes more apparent to the reader um i think sorry no you go 
I was just going to say, I just love to write places in transition. I think it is fascinating what people tend to when pitted against a world that isn't going to save them, if that makes sense. Yes, absolutely. And there is such a sense of transition in this novel and in ways that are iterative as well that I think is really compelling because oftentimes when we look back on history, right, we see like, oh, this was a moment of change and it happened in this one time. But really often if you actually look at things, it's like, no, the society and the people were sort of struggling with this thing over a span of many years. Mm. And the role of the gods is has radically shifted, but we're sort of living in the aftershocks of that and the ways in which that's continuing to be revisited and reimagined both on like a larger political scale, but also mm-hmm. the characters personally as well, because obviously like faith and things like that are so personal. Um, Absolutely. That it has been, so Kissin obviously has like a very clear um, sort of anti-God stance that is interesting that she has reached a level of sort of power or respectability in society that she didn't have before. Whereas Elo in some ways feels like he has, as you said, like sort of chosen to step out of that space. Could you talk a little bit about his relationship to gods and the king and how that has like shaped the decisions he's making at the beginning of this novel? So Elo comes from um, a slightly different cultural back- background to um, to both the king and Kissin. Like his, his mothers are from a different country where the relationship with with faith and gods is slightly different and i wanted to make sure i wasn't being kind of like unilateral in how people interpret their relationship with with gods that become real so elo has seen essentially has kind of become grown up in this land that's slightly different to how his mothers have a relationship with god uh, or with gods and has grown up with the king uh, in a court which put gods on a, on a very high pedestal, which eventually tore that, that court completely apart because the gods became essentially too big for their boots um, and started a, a war of idolatry between them. And then that has triggered a kind of a siege or the destruction of a city. So Elo has seen the worst things that gods could possibly do and has participated in their destruction but he also, and you find out during the course of the book, that during that war, one of the reasons that um, the gods didn't completely win and wipe out the humans is because gods fought on, fought on both sides of the war, as in the fall of Troy and as in kind of a lot of different mythological standpoints. It's kind of a god standing by human sides and on their, on their own sides and for their own purposes. And so Elo feels very much caught in the middle of worlds. And so his decision to step away was essentially kind of kind of sticking his head in the sand. Um, he didn't agree with the king's approach of saying gods are causing chaos and we need to get rid of all of them because this mess should never happen again. Elo thinks that freedom of faith is important and essential part of being human. Um, and that he couldn't stand by and commit to a set of laws which would deny people's freedom of faith so he steps away but it means he's ended up fighting for nothing and that doesn't sit right with him he kind of comes in at the beginning of the book quite lost 
he's very proud and he's very um he's experienced a lot of trauma um but he really does stand by that point of himself and what he believes which is that gods exist people have faith in them people should be allowed to so he's um does spend the book kind of torn between worlds and and um his main root in this world becomes himself like him his standpoint what he believes in and that's kind of where his journey the journey that Kissin takes is much um takes her a bit out of him, herself and makes challenges like kind of the things that she believes Elo's journey is kind of inwards and more having to pick apart the choices that he's made and why he has made them and whether they were the right choices to start with, which has been um, a very interesting foil for the two of them because they're both kind of wandering heroes. They're both um, knights of certain sorts. One's a mercenary, one's a knight um, on their own kind of quest at the same time together, but they have very different experiences of the world, very different opinions. So they're kind of um, both opposites, but also connected. So I really enjoyed that contrast between them. Yeah, it's um, they they're very interesting in the ways that they're both similar and different. Um, and one of the things that they have in common, and really Inara does as well, is there's a lot of grappling with sort of the legacy of violence and of trauma in these novels, or in this novel as well. I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about that as well in terms of the role in the story. I really wanted to kind of explore a story after the fallout of war. Because I think kind of war in fantasy is often battles of morals, but not, well, more and more fantasy is exploring kind of like, what is the impact of that on, on human people? Like war in the real world, as in fantasy novels, is a mass traumatizing event, a mass disabling event. Um, it has repercussions economically, financially, kind of fit in faith, in religion. And those repercussions can be seismic. And so I really wanted to not just delve straight into... Uh, I mean, I was tempted to write stories of the war, and I definitely wrote flashbacks to it. Like a lot of them got uh, deleted from the, the during the editorial process to focus on the main story. And I think that's because I just found the kind of repercussions of violence to sometimes be more interesting and more um, challenging than, than violence itself. And in the same ways of like the Odyssey and the Aeneid trace the events of the war, but really a focus on what happened afterwards. Um, I sort of thought that was quite p pulling on some fantastic traditions um, that I really found interesting to explore um but because we've kind of set the story after such a seismic event it would have been i think mm, it would have been odd not to delve into what the repercussions of that can be on on people and what the different repercussions of that can be on people yeah absolutely and I think that that's one of the things that this novel does so well is you're taking a lot of what well, are really central things in a lot of fantasy, I think, 
um, in terms of, right, like this is a quest novel, which is very central to the genre, but also is something that kind of fell, fell out of fashion because it was so central that there's been pushback. And I think that you take so many things, whether that's the quest novel or what it is to exist outside of or after a war and really examine and explore those things in a way that feels both very celebratory of the genre and also just like very empathetic and curious about the story as well. I was wondering yeah, if we could you. switch tax a little bit and talk about um, Elo's baking, which <laughs> is a response to some of those things, but also it's just like a very, food is a very central part of his perspective, his POV, yeah. and I was wondering if we could talk a little about that. Well, I kind of, as I was kind of building the world and I was trying to figure out, you know, what would this world be when there are so many gods kind of coming out of the, out of the ether, they're kind of being transported from place to place. And it's certainly not new in fantasy. I mean, we've got American gods by Neil Gaiman. Um, a lot of Terry Pratchett kind of explores the ideas of gods and where they come from and how they manifest. And so as I was kind of thinking about that world, I was thinking a lot about the Mediterranean and the exchange of cultures, stories, folklore, myths, um, fables. But I was also thinking about the exchange of food um, and not just because food is central to my life, which it is. Um, food is one of the things that makes me feel happiest. I think that like, sense of community, of fellowship that comes with like breaking bread, um, figuratively and literally. Um, it's one of the kind of greatest joys in my life. But there's so many aspects of kind of like food culture and, and spice culture that has been passed around through trade um, and through colonialization and invasion. And I think it's a really fascinating aspect of a world is what do they eat and why do they eat that? And where does that come from and how is that connected? Um, I mean, a lot of kind of aspects of fantasy, people always refer to like potatoes being South American. And so when we have like medieval Western fantasy, it's like, they kind of shouldn't exist. Um, but I don't, I don't think that's like, that's a hard and fast rule. I think kind of it's about imagination and what feels right and feels fantastical and feels kind of wholesome. Um, so I really wanted to play on kind of what people would eat, what they would kind of come to for comfort, what would be specific to the localities that they're traveling through. Um, because, you know, food and spices over a trade sea will be easier to come by when you go further and further into mountains or more rural areas it'll have to be a lot more localized and i think it was just fascinating to me and how that kind of could connect into gods of harvest or gods of trade or gods of spices or gods of baking um so i kind of wanted to bring out some of those again classic elements of fantasy and and breaking bread over a campfire but also kind of explore aspects of our own historical trade cultures um particularly in kind of like central eastern and um southern europe and how so much of our food culture is kind of come through trade absolutely I was wondering if we could talk to a little bit about um, Inara, who we've spoken about a little bit less and is in some ways like the most tied to gods and also is certainly our youngest protagonist or POV character. Can you talk a little bit about her and the role that she plays in the story? 
So an hour kind of fits a very, um, and we've talked a little bit about like, uh, I guess the tropes of fantasy that I've been playing with and like kind of coming at the quest sidelong and coming at the wandering hero sidelong and kind of like with my, my great love and enduring love of the genre. Um, and Inara is kind of fills that sort of coming of age or um, sort of green eyed um, first experiencer of a world. So I mean, you've got someone like Bilbo in The Hobbit or you've got Lyra in The Northern Lights. And it's a classic way to introduce a world through someone else's eyes and through a character's eyes. So Inara was someone who has been very cloistered and has grown up kind of quite coddled and enclosed and hiding the secret of a god um and then she is suddenly kind of thrown into a world which is not built to support her and is in fact kind of is kind of built to get like it is out to get her um she has a connection with a god which is illegal uh she is the daughter of a lady who has mysteriously um whose lands have been destroyed very early on in the book sorry for the spoiler um but very very early on on the book so she kind of essentially has no one and nothing to support her which means that she's essentially thrown onto the arms of other people and has to essentially kind of figure out who she is in a very unfriendly environment and I always find that so interesting both as a reader and as a character is kind of like how do you react when everything that you've relied on for all your life is taken away and what does that make of you like what does that make of you as a human and so Inara's story very much in the first book is is kind of a coming of age is coming into herself which means it's very set up for the next couple of books to become more interesting still of where what she do when she discovers who she is and what impact is that going to have on everyone else and so I really love her as a character it's difficult to write someone who is so young and precocious and annoying and grieving and but she's a child and I found that kind of contrast with the very jaded characters of Kissin and Elo to be really delightful she also has a sort of unique relationship um, with magic and with the world, as we've sort of touched on. I was wondering if we could take like a quick tangent to talk a little bit about the role of color in magic in this world, because I think it's really interesting and really fun. Oh, thank you. It was something I was trying to, as I was developing the lore of the world and of the gods in it, I wanted to figure out, you know, what was it that brings these gods to, to physical life? Um, I mean, it's definitely on the soft magic side of of magic building and fantasy um but i knew that what people offered gods would give gods that life and that power um so essentially it was an exchange of love and what is love but a kind of energy and that energy it can't just be love love is also emotion and a mixture of emotions and so i wanted the colors of the world to be what people's how are people's emotions manifest and are apparent to gods and also it's what gods can see and then manipulate as well is how people's essentially emotions are expressed through an aura around them that humans can't see but gods can 
and Inara through her connection with Skedi and the God of White Lies, but also um, with gods potentially sort of further than that, is that she can see these emotions too. And they can be hugely overwhelming, especially for a girl who's kind of grown up on her own in a manner, when she kind of gets introduced to larger towns and larger cities and the clash of emotion and how people communicate with each other, hide themselves or reveal themselves in a way that their words don't necessarily say. And when a gift is given to a god or a prayer is given to a god, those emotions essentially manifest in, in the object that's being handed over and that power is, is passed into into the god which gives them strength, which is kind of touched on in book one and will be taken a little bit further in book two. Um, but I wanted to make sure there was something kind of grounded underneath how gods exist and how they manifest, but also something really beautiful and magical and and powerful in it as well. Um, and something that kind of, for Inara, is quite difficult to process because she's essentially kind of dealing with not just what she sees or what other people see on a day-to-day basis. She's got a huge amount of stimulation in, in colour and people's smallest expressions that other people don't have to deal with. So I think it makes her quite um, interesting, but also she'll have to tread that line that God's also tread is, do you just see these emotions and understand them? Do you empathize or can you use those to manipulate and to change the world around you? And that's something that she's going to have to deal with as she grows up. Yeah, absolutely. She's, she's a sweetheart. I mean, I'm, my background is in like education. And so I have such a soft spot for tweens in my heart at all times but it's yeah it's fun it's a great time to have tweens in fantasy um i just sorry um i just love the kind of their potential they're sort of bursting with potential and with power and with knowledge like they're not set yet in who they are but they get to make those choices which i think is one of the most like interesting thing about this character um is that she is in the process of becoming and that's one of the like, things I love, a young person who is coming into a fantasy world and just kind of being able to explore both who they are and who this world is and where they're set in it. Yeah, absolutely. This is such a wonderful introduction to a world and a series that is going to be I think so much fun. Um, thank you so much for speaking with me today. I've really enjoyed our conversation. And if you've not yet checked out God Killer, you absolutely should. Uh, I have been speaking with Hannah Kaner about her novel God Killer, which is out September 12th from Harper Voyager here in North America. Thank you so much for listening. And please consider feeding the algorithms by subscribing, leaving a review, um, telling a friend about us, all that good stuff. I will speak to you soon, and for now, happy reading.